security threats are everywhere. But with Xfinity XFi, you're notified of threats to your in-home Wi-Fi network, so all your connected devices are protected. That's simple, easy, awesome. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit today. Restrictions apply. The kind of old-fashioned cop who preferred working the streets and making arrests to taking tests toward promotion. He was the closest thing New York had to a dirty Harry. This is One Tough Podcast on the OG Podcast Network. Here's your host, Bo Deedle. Welcome to One Tough Podcast. I'm joined here, like always, with my man, Carlo. Hello. Today we have John Spellett. Kiriaku. Kiriaku, a beautiful Greek name from a man from Rhodes. That's where he's from. John's an author, radio host, and most notably, a whistleblower who exposed illegal CIA torture program and served prison time for it. Thanks, John, for being here, my brother. Okay, Thank let's, you, talk a bit, let's talk a bit about your foundation in life. You're from both parents of Greek? Yeah, both parents are, are Greek, born in the United States, but of Greek uh, parents. And you grew uh, up, where'd you grow up? Grew up in western Pennsylvania, just north of Pittsburgh, up in Amish country. Ah, I know that very well. Is that sure that's Amish? I thought oh, Amish was near oh, Downingtown, yeah. Coatesville area. They they spread all all across Pennsylvania and into Ohio. Wow, I always thought the out west there they weren't there. That was the steel towns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Rust bucket steel towns now. Okay, so when all of a sudden you uh, you grew up in in, in PA, where you yep. did you go to college? Yeah, I went to college at George Washington University. I got a bachelor's degree in Middle Eastern studies there, and then I stayed for a master's degree in policy analysis. And then, as it turned out, one of my advisors was not really a professor there. He was actually a CIA officer undercover as a professor there, Uh and he recruited me into the CIA. Wow. And then uh, what year was this we're talking about? That was 1988. Wow. That was You look too young to be around there. Uh Thank you. Yeah, I feel like yeah. a tired old man. Did you know I, they asked me to be in the CIA, too? No, I did not know that. I knew this guy, and all of a sudden I told him, this was uh, uh, before 9-11, and I told him, you know, I'd like to help my country. I'd like to go in the yeah. CIA. So he says, uh, really, Bo? I said, yeah. So he says, somebody will contact you. Well, so I get a phone call, and they tell me to meet under the uh, old clock in Peacock Alley at the Waldorf Astoria. Someone yeah. will contact you. So yes. I, I, all of a sudden, I'm standing there at 12 noon, and then all of a sudden, I hear, Baudino. I'm looking around. It was a woman about four foot tall. Hey, Baudino. And she flashes this this double-sided identification, CIA. And yes. how you do? She goes, my name is so-and-so. I said, oh. And then she sits to me down and she goes, you know, we looked you over. You had a great career as a New York City homicide detective. Uh, why do you want to be in the CIA? I said, I love my country. I just feel as though I'm not doing enough. I'm a private investigator. I travel around the world. That could be my, my cover. I could go to Abu Dhabi, wherever I got to go. And I could make believe I'm investigating something else when I'm investigating the Abu Dhabi Doos. So all of a sudden she's there. She's listening to me. So she says, okay, somebody else will contact you. And I'll never forget. She gave me a card. And it's called something Fox Farms in Virginia. Fox, I remember. It was like a, ooh, you know, when they do with the foxes, they blow the horn. Yeah. And that insignia was on as something Fox Farms. And that must have been a CIA 
location here. So everything was good. The next day, I used to do Imus in the morning. Remember Imus, the radio guy? Sure did. Yeah, MSN- did for, yeah, 34 years I did him. And, yeah, until he retired. So uh, I mean, I'm a little bad keeping secrets. That's all I tell you. So next day, I hit I hit the Imus Airways, and he's there, and I'm giddy. I'm giddy because I'm really... I can't believe that they're reaching out to me, be a CIA operative. So I said, I can't tell you, Don. He's a what, Paul? I said, you want me to really tell you? I've been contacted by the CIA to be an operative in the Middle East. You know, I know all these Saudi Arabian guys. I spent a lot of time there. Put it this way. After I blasted it out on the Imus in the morning, they, they never freaking called me. They said, this guy can't keep a secret for one day. So that was my CIA operative uh, responsibility there. Let's talk about you. I never became a CIA operative. Sorry, I can't keep the secret. All right, so then you were, this is in the 1980s. Okay, so you went over yep. the Middle East after that? I started off as an analyst. I spent the first seven and a half years of my career there as an analyst working on Iraq. A lot of that was overseas, mostly in what the Persian. What does that mean Gulf. to the listeners working on Iraq? What does that mean? Uh, well, you know, the CIA does two primary things. Yeah. One is analysis and the other is operations. In analysis, usually you sit in a cubicle in headquarters, you think the big thoughts, you write papers that nobody's ever going to read, and then you send them over to the White House. And every couple of years you go overseas, maybe you stay for a year, two, three years, you become an expert, you learn to speak the language. And then you come back and were, transfer. Were you fluent in, uh, in Arabic? I was fluent in Arabic. Um, I, have a, I have a knack for foreign languages, and they recognized that early on, so they took advantage of it. Which what's was that, not what's that dialect? What's that dialect that all the uh, terrorists use? What's that dialect? Fusha. Footcock? Fusha. Oh, Fusha. Okay, go ahead. Fusha. And then I learned uh, Khaliji, Gulf dialect as well, because I spent so much time in Saudi Arabia, oh. Kuwait, Bahrain. I was in Saudi like Arabia in the, the late uh, the late 70, uh, 70s and the early 80s. I used to go to to, to Riyadh and we'd fly to, uh, uh, what's that place called on the Red Sea? Jeddah. And Jeddah. Then we, and then there was supposed to be no alcohol in Saudi Arabia. Right. In the yeah. palaces I was in, they had more booze than the bar downstairs. And then we yeah. used to fly to... Uh, uh, Jeddah, and we would bang the Middle Eastern airline stewardesses with all the princes. We'd give them $1,500 and bang them over there in the hotel. This is a very religious country. This is yeah. in the 19, late 70s and 80s we were banging them. Wow. So you know, we used, to, yeah. we used to ship alcohol out, and we would get these calls from the airport, from uh, customs and immigration. They would, they would call us and say that our shipment of office furniture was leaking, <laughs> and could we come and get it, please? Yeah, the thing I didn't like when I arrived in Riyadh, these son of a bitches, when I'd come from New York, I'd take flight 24. It was a Pan American, uh, uh, it was a combination flight. When I, I would, I would go into, uh, Dahran, and then I'd have yep. to catch the next flight to Riyadh. Am I correct with that? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's and, right. And they would throw all my shit out of my suitcases. I say, hey, uh, Abdul, take it easy. I said, and they were looking <laughs> for porno movies. I was, I told him, you want to find porno movies? I'm with Prince, uh, Fahad bin, uh, bin Abdul Aziz. Go to his palace. He's got more porno <laughs> movies than a porno parlor. Yeah. And, and then he became king. Yeah, no, no. This was this was Fahad bin Turkey. He got blown up. He got yeah. blown up uh, two years ago in uh, Yemen. 
He became the highest-ranking guy. He's the guy who broke my leg jumping out of a plane in uh, Paris, California. He had 100 jumps. His partner, Abdulaziz, uh, Ben Nasser, Ben Abdulaziz, we jumped out of a plane. I broke my freaking leg in half, my ankle, and I had to retire from the police department. I don't care. Ah, terrible. But so let's talk about you, not Bo. Okay, so you went after 9-11, what happened? You kicked into patriotism. Well, you know, I... I, I got bored in analysis. You just sit there and you just write paper after paper after paper. You know nobody's reading these papers. And then you're telling people, well, I'm writing for the president. I'm writing for the secretary of state. But they're not reading your stupid papers. And so I, I said, i got to do something different. I want to I go overseas. And it turned out that they were looking for a, a person to, um, to work in Athens against Arab terrorists. And as it turned out, I was literally the only person in the entire CIA who was fluent in both Greek and Arabic. Wow. And so they, they sent me to Athens uh, for two years, and I liked it so much I switched over to operations. So then after 9-11, they made me the uh, chief of CIA counterterrorism operations in Pakistan. I went out to Pakistan and started... Was this after the four Americans were killed in Pakistan? This was after the four Americans Right, because my friend John O'Neill, who died in World Trade Center, Johnny yeah. O'Neill was an FBI agent, along with uh, uh, Tom Nicoletti. They wanted yep. that. That's when they called in. This is before 9-11, and they wanted a strike on this uh, bin Laden dickhead, and they had him in there, yep. and shake and bake uh, Reno wouldn't let him send a Hellfire missile yep. and blow this guy That's up. True. And this is, this is the truth of what happened. If they would have killed him, maybe 9-11 wouldn't have occurred. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And they had a second opportunity to get him as well, Bo. Uh, Bin Laden, like a tourist, was transiting Doha Airport one time. Uh-huh. And the Qataris um, stopped him there. And President Clinton called the emir of Qatar and said, you've got to turn him over to us. But the problem was the Justice Department had never bothered to indict the guy. <laughs> and because he hadn't been indicted, they the Qataris couldn't turn him over. And so they let him go, and he went on to Sudan, wow. and then from Sudan to Afghanistan. So we missed him several times. And then talking to John, I used to hang out with John at Elaine's. was a bar up on 88th Street oh, yeah. uh, on the 2nd Avenue. And John used to tell me about this Bin Laden guy and with the coal he was in back oh, yes. of that, and then with the two embassy bombings. I mean, the son of a bitch, we knew what he was. And we didn't we did. have the balls because of Reno. She shake and bake Reno, the same one that handled that very good over there in Waco. She did a good job over there too, with all those kids getting killed. There was no, yeah. there was no need for that. And this that woman awesome. is a disgrace, and uh, she died. So happy days for her. I don't care. Yeah. But you know what? We could have maybe saved nine eleven. So now you're over there after nine yeah. eleven, and then you get involved with uh, investigating Al Qaeda. One more footnote: When I was in uh, uh, two years. Years ago, I was in Athens, and uh, this is when the first wave of Syrians were coming over, probably one quarter of them terrorists, who the hell knows. And yeah. I'm walking around with my gold watch, and a couple of the cops grab me and go, no, no good. Do not wear your watch here. Everyone's getting robbed. People don't understand the crime yeah, wave true. that has occurred across Europe with the advent and the of the Syrians. I mean, some of them are good people, but you got scumbags in there, and uh, they're yeah. robbing people and all that. Okay. Okay, so now all of a sudden you're in you're in Pakistan. How yeah. did you? What was your cover in Pakistan? Uh, I had very very light cover in Pakistan because I I was declared to the Pakistani intelligence service. So my oh, they job declared was, you as a, as an operative. Yeah, they oh, declared me as an. 
You weren't yeah, like but, selling fucking magic. Excuse my language. You weren't selling magic carpets and shit. No, I was. I tried to buy a lot of magic carpets, but no, <laughs> I, I was pretty well out there. And so uh, my job was to work with them to try to capture as many Al Qaeda fighters as we possibly could. And they were we all the devil, a lot of them. A lot of them were in Pakistan. Oh boy, were they! And it, I'm I'm proud to say that one of the ideas that I came up with is, you know, we had officers all the way up and down the border. And I said, this is ridiculous trying to catch these guys one at a time in, in the most formidable, uh, forbidding landscape in the world. I said, let's just let them in, let them into the country. And then get them there. All, yeah, we'll get them in their safe houses. So instead of catching one at a time on the border, we catch 10 and well, 20. Instead of, going into Tor, instead of going into Tora Bora with all that bullshit terrain, let them exactly. come on in, give them a little... Let them have yes. lamb balls or whatever they eat, right? And, and that's exactly what we did. And, you know, they're stupid. So they're all on their cell phones. They're all checking their emails. Yeah. And NSA's watching porno. Watching porno yeah. jerking it's, off. The, the, yeah. the, they all watch porno. You know, the night that, as an aside, the night that bin Laden was killed, um, a buddy of mine from the CIA called me and he said, how much porn do you think is on that computer? And I said, are you kidding? That computer is going to be completely porn. And it was. It was we, all porn. We got, uh, my friend is the guy that whacked them there, uh, Rob O'Neill. And uh, they, they, they got a lot. It was a lot of porn there, Carl. You didn't know. He was that religious about Abu Dhabi, what's that guy, Muhammad, that he was jerking off with porn all the time. He's just the uh, same as the other guy from Iraq, the uh, Saddam Hussein, and his two yeah. brothers, brothers uh, sons, Dewey and Gooey there. What was their names, Carl? Uday and Kusay. Yeah, douchebag and douchebag. Yeah, yeah, hey, John, a quick a, question. Um, did you sure. get a lot of cooperation from from the ISI, or were they kind that, of? That's a great question. Um, the The short answer is yes, but but the, the ISI people that I was dealing with, they were specifically the counterterrorism people, and they were all educated and trained in the U.S. and the U.K. But then when I would go over to ISI headquarters, you see a lot of people with long, bushy beards, short shalwar uh, kameez, giving you the stink eye. Those are the guys that created the Taliban. Those are the guys that trained and armed the Kashmiri separatists. So in my mind, there were two separate ISIs. There was the group of good guys working with us and the group of bad guys working against the us. The ones that went through British intelligence, American intelligence. And we all know the ISI knew exactly that uh, big bird there, uh, the bin Laden. They knew where he was all the time. Yeah, and sure uh, I mean, he was being he was being protected by them, if anything. And I think the line was drawn in the sand. I got to say one thing about uh, President uh, what was his Obama. Name? Obama, and I'll praise him for one thing. I praise him for taking this prick out because yeah. it was a very dangerous mission. And if they took yeah. out our helicopters, it could have been rather embarrassing. God bless Obama for doing that. And he's, yeah. he's good in my right. eyes. He did one thing good. That was one thing good. So let's talk about the actual operation that you were in charge of to capture uh, Abu Zubaydah. Yeah. Well, who's Abu Zubaydah? Tell, tell the people well, listening. We we thought at the time that Abu Zubaydah was the number three in al-Qaeda. That turned out to be un, untrue or incorrect, but he was a, a very bad man. This is a guy who had created both of al-Qaeda's training uh, camps in southern Afghanistan. And he was the founder of al-Qaeda's safe house in Peshawar, Pakistan, called the House of Martyrs. So if you were a, a young jihadi and you wanted to go make jihad against the Americans, you got in touch with Abu Zubaydah, he got you there. Or if you were already in the fight and you were tired, you wanted to go home, you went to Abu Zubaydah, he got you a fake passport, he got you a ticket, and you went home. 
So he was kind of Al-Qaeda's logistics guy. He was the guy that made the trains run on time. Well, in March of um, February of 2002, we got word from uh, from the fort that Abu Zubaydah was somewhere in the country and we had to catch him. He was in Pakistan. He was somewhere in Pakistan, which was ridiculous because Pakistan is the size of Texas and it has 180 million people in it. And you can't just say he's somewhere in Pakistan. Go catch him. So we set out to, to hunt him. And that's what we did. Now, he knew that we were on his trail, and we were actually closer than we realized we were. We were about a day, sometimes two days behind him, but he was constantly changing locations. Finally, I called um, headquarters, and I said, listen, we're just not going to be able to find him like this. I need a targeting analyst out here. The next day, they sent out a guy who was a friend of mine, a targeting analyst, different from the kind of analysis I used to do, a targeting analyst pours through reams, thousands, millions of pieces of data to try to locate a target so we can kill him. Mm -hmm. So this uh, targeting analyst flew out. He spent about two weeks trying to figure out how we could geolocate Abu Zubaydah. And then finally he came to me and said, I just can't get it down to any 17 sites. I said, my God, we never hit more than two sites simultaneously in a single night. We can't hit 14 sites, you know, all at the same time. But I realized we we had to. And so um, I cabled headquarters and I said, we need a big team, 36 people, half CIA, half FBI. We need weapons, ammunition, battering rams, night vision goggles, secure communications, bulletproof vests. They chartered a 737. They put everything on but with pallets, 36 guys, they flew out to Pakistan and the next now, who day. Who was your they got support their guys? Were there uh, military support guys with you, like SEALs with you, or was it just CIA guys? No, this was actually before the SEALs started getting involved. The, steel, the SEALs got involved after Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. So this was about uh, seven months before the SEALs got called in. Uh-huh. So it was just us. I mean, we were dopes. We didn't really know what we were doing. And what do I know about busting down doors and grabbing people? I, I had never done that before. So this was um, a CIA, CIA complete operation without yeah. support of the military guys. Yeah, yeah. Wow. We had the support of, of a group called the Punjab Elite Force, which was the SWAT team from Lahore, Pakistan. These guys were fearless. Good and the guys, funny thing but is, they were really good guys. Good guys. And they were the only ones who didn't wear bulletproof vests. They only wow. wore these black T-shirts with a with a 45 a stencil of a 45 on them and it said Punjab elite force they weren't afraid of well, anybody well they're a little psychopathic to me that's <laughs> kind of stupid to me cuz yeah, those bullets will take you right out i'd have a i would have a plate right up there you ain't going to get in my nuts i would have another plate around them okay so now <laughs> you you you're zeroing in on abu there uh, zakadaka whatever his name is yep. and what yep. happens how do you catch him he made a mistake bo he made a stupid mistake. And and we had counted on him making a mistake. He uh, he accessed his Hotmail account with a landline. Wow. And as soon as he did, I mean, within five minutes, we Don't had Don't tell him too much technology, because there might be some Abadabadoos listening. We yeah. have, we have great is, technology, believe it or not. We have great technology. This is 18-year-old information, so it's all different now. Yeah. But, uh, but sure enough, that address was one of the 14 on our list. And... Uh, and that night at 0200, we, we busted down 14 doors simultaneously as the clock struck uh, struck two. And uh, 
You have to kill anybody? Grabbed everybody. No, our, my orders very specifically were to take him alive, but this idiot Pakistani cop uh, shot him three times with an AK-47. Shot him in the thigh, the groin, and the stomach. Well, he got rid um, of his ball bag, so there can't be no more of them. That's good. So that was a good was shot. A, it was a bloody mess, let me tell you. Yeah. Uh, and, and so... Uh, so I, I uh, we threw, a bunch of us threw him into the back of a filthy Toyota pickup truck. We took him to Faisalabad Hospital, middle of the night, three thirty in the morning. Uh, we shocked the doctor. You know, all these Americans walking in at three thirty in the morning, dressed as Pakistanis, with an Arab who's bleeding to death. And I told the doctor, "Listen, my orders were to take him alive. You need to sew him up, and I mean right now." So they took him into the operating room. They're but you had Pakistani guys with you. Yeah, we had Pakistani guys with the us. Squat guys. Yeah, but there were a bunch of blonde-haired, blue-eyed CIA guys wearing shalwar kameez that looked <laughs> ridiculous. All right, so now you sewed a guy up. Where do you bring him then? Well, the, the problem that we had is while he was in surgery, word got around the al-Qaeda community that we had gotten him, and they started driving past the hospital and just opening fire on the hospital. Wow. So I told I told this Pakistani major that I was with, I said, look, if they realize we're so lightly armed, we're dead. Can you get a helicopter in here? He said, yeah. 20 minutes later, a helicopter lands in the parking lot. I walk right into the operating room, kind of like this. I told the doctor, wrap it up. We got to go. They sewed him up as fast as they could. We wheeled him onto the helicopter. We flew to a military base about 50 miles away. And then I got a call from the, uh, from the station and they said that uh, George Tenet, the CIA director, had ordered, these were his exact words, 24-7 CIA eyes on, do not leave his bedside. And I ended up sitting there for the next 56 hours. I tore up a sheet. I tied him to the bed because I was afraid I was going to fall asleep. Yeah. And, um, and I just sat there at the foot of the bed and stared at him for the next 56 hours. Wow. Okay, so then, then what happens? Where do you go next? Well, 24 hours into this, um, he starts to... Uh, he starts to stir. And in the meantime, I, I had called one of the guys over at our safe house. And I said, buddy, I said, I, I smell so bad. I'm grossing myself out. I said, can you send over some clean clothes? The only clean clothes I had, I had a pair of underwear, a pair of socks, and a red T-shirt that my kids had bought me that I slept in. It had, it had a SpongeBob SquarePants in the middle of it. <laughs> so I put that on with my big, poofy Pakistani balloon pants. And um, 24 hours later, he starts to stir. Remember, he's tied to the bed, so he's tied like this. And, um, and I stood up at the foot of the bed, and he opened one eye, and you could see the exact instant that he realized, oh, my God, the Americans have me. Because mm -hmm. he looked at SpongeBob, yeah. and his heart rate went from 110 to 220, and he coded. And so oh they God. call the code blue, they rush into the room, they shock him with the paddles, they give him a shot of Demerol, and then he's out again for another six hours. Mm. So six hours after that, he wakes up, he's terrified, and he motions for me to come next to him. So I move his oxygen mask off to the side, and I said to him in Arabic, Shu'ismek, what is your name? And he shakes his head. So I repeated it, Shu'ismek. And he says to me in English, I will not speak to you in God's language. And I said, that's okay, Abu Zubaydah. We know who you are. He starts crying. And he says, please, brother, kill me. Take the pillow and kill me. And I said, nobody's going to kill you. We've been looking for you for a long time. And I said, I don't know much. 
but I know that you're going to get the best medical care that the American government can provide. So he relaxed. Finally, uh, he wanted to know what happened. He couldn't really remember what happened. I said, you trying to escape. He had climbed to the roof of, the, of his safe house to jump to the roof of the next next door house. And the Pakistani guy shot him. And um, and he, we talked a lot. Uh, we talked about Christianity versus Islam. He recited poetry. He cried a lot. He said he would never know the touch of a woman. He would never know the joy of fatherhood. And I Why? said, listen, you're not the victim here. I said, there were 50,000 people in those towers. What did you think was going to happen? Yeah. Did you think we wouldn't try to find you, to kill you, to kill bin Laden? You're lucky you're alive. We could have killed you the other night. And he said, no, I only wanted to kill Jews. He said, I, I, was, I was overruled. And I said, well, be that as it may, you're not the victim here. And then finally, I said to him, he, he was really worried about what was going to happen to him. And the honest to God's truth was, I didn't know what was going to happen to him. I didn't have a need to know. And so I said to him, I'm being honest with you. I said, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'll tell you one thing. I am the nicest guy that you're going to meet in this experience. My colleagues, they're Goes not all downhill like after this, all downhill. Mm. I said, if I could give you one piece of advice, it's that you have to cooperate. And he said, you seem like a nice man, but you're the enemy and I'll never cooperate. I said, suit yourself. So a couple of hours after that, again, at, at about uh, five in the morning, an unmarked CIA jet landed on the tarmac right outside the, the hospital room. The hospital was right on the tarmac on this base. And um, he asked me if I would hold his hand. He cried all the way to the plane. Three FBI agents and I carried his gurney out to the out to the plane. It was hard to get him on because he was strapped to the gurney. So we sort of maneuvered him onto the plane. We strapped him on the uh, on the luggage rack at the back. And I leaned over and I said, remember, you have to cooperate. And he squeezed my hand and I never saw him again. That was it. Yeah, that was it. You should have given him a BLT, bacon, lettuce and tomato sandwich. <laughs> What's the name of those pants that you said? The Salwakamans. <laughs> Michelle Warkamis. That's the, uh, the singer Can't Stop This? What was that? Uh, MC Hammer. MC Hammer used to wear those hair pants, right? That's yeah. Right. Okay, so now you don't see him again after this, right? No, I don't see him again. So on when the, does this the... whole thing come out about the allegations against you? Yeah, well, because of the strength of this capture, this was the senior most Al-Qaeda person well, we had Was it the other guy under bin Laden, the guy that looks like a professor there with the glasses? What's his day? He's still at large. The Al-Qaeda number two guy. Oh, yeah, Ayman Zawahiri. That was Zawahiri. Yeah. We never whacked him yet? No, can't find the guy. Can't find it. Unbelievable. You know, I, and I wonder, too, and, and I don't have any inside information here, Bo, but I'm, I'm as an educated uh, observer, I wonder if we're just not looking for him. Because Al-Qaeda is pretty much irrelevant now. And I wonder if we just walked away. You know, we're focusing on ISIS and maybe other groups. We just don't care about Al-Qaeda anymore. Yeah, if I saw him, I'd whack him. Yeah, yeah I would too. Okay, would so too. now let's go. How do you get in trouble? Because well, as far I, as I'm I concerned, go... you're a great American right now. What Thank happened? You. Thank you. I, I'm a patriot. I want that to be clear. I'm an I'm an absolute patriot. So I go home to headquarters, and because of the capture, I got promoted, and they made me deputy uh, assist. Uh, I'm sorry, I was executive assistant to the deputy director of the CIA for operations. And uh, in that position, you have access to literally everything around the world that's happening. Mm -hmm. And August 1st, well, before, before, I, before I even started in that job, 
I get back to headquarters and uh, I'm in the cafeteria one day and a buddy of mine from the counterterrorism center comes up to me and he says, hey, hey, I'm glad I ran into you. You want to be uh, certified in the use of enhanced interrogation techniques? What year are we talking about now? Yeah, uh, this is uh, this is a senior uh, counterterrorism. What year? This is uh, May of 2002. Go ahead. So I had never heard the term enhanced interrogation techniques. I said, what is that? And so he explains it to me. And I said, man, that sounds like a torture program. Are you kidding me? And he said, no, no, it's not torture. Uh, the president signed off on it, and, and DOJ said that we could do it. And I said, let me think about it for an hour. So I went up to the seventh floor. It's the executive uh, floor of the CIA. There was a very, very senior CIA officer up there who I had worked for about a decade earlier. So I knocked on his door, and I said, hey, I need some advice. They just asked me if I want to do these enhanced interrogation techniques. And he says to me, listen, first of all, let's call a spade a spade. This is a torture program. They can call it whatever they want. They can use whatever euphemism they want. This is a torture program. And torture is a slippery slope. And you know how these guys are, he says. Somebody's going to go overboard, and they're going to kill a prisoner. And when that happens, there's going to be a congressional investigation. Then there's going to be a Justice Department investigation, and somebody's going to go to prison. Do you want to go to prison? And I said, no, I don't want to go to prison. It turned out I was the only person who went to prison. But I went back downstairs and went back to this senior officer and I said, this is a torture program. I'm not interested in it. And so I went about my business. Well, August 1st, 2002, we start torturing Abu Zubaydah. Oh, your friend, you start torturing him. Yeah. Oh, and then you saw him again. I thought you didn't see him. No, no, no. I I was at headquarters. They were torturing him at a secret prison overseas. But I'm reading... I'm reading the cable traffic as it's coming back. Were you there at the scene of the torture? No, I was not. Oh, so you know that they, because you were uh, uh, high up, you knew yeah. they, were, they were interrogating him. Good. Yeah, and I had to brief the director every morning about all this stuff that was going down. And, and who was the director at that time? Yes, uh, George Tennant. Okay, good. So um, I said, this is, uh, this is a, a, a war crime. I mean, we're we're signatories to the United Nations Convention Against Torture, and we're, we have the Federal Torture Act of, of 1946. It specifically outlaws exactly these techniques. And to tell you the truth, I, I waited for somebody to go public. I just figured somebody would, because as we're torturing him, people are um, – they're objecting in, in cable traffic, and some of them actually – returned to headquarters from overseas because they had such serious objections. But nobody said anything. So two years later, I resigned from the CIA to go into the private sector. I've got five kids. I needed to make some money, put them through college. And still, I kept waiting for somebody to uh, to say something. Now, what year is this now? This was um, 2004, I left the CIA. Good. You left the CIA and you went to private practice. Good. Yeah, 2004, I went into the private sector. And then in December of 2007, and this is where the shit hit the fan. December of 2007, I get a call from Brian Ross of ABC News. Now, I've never spoken to a reporter before. So Brian Ross tells me that he has a source who said that I had tortured Abu Zubaydah. I said, absolutely untrue. I was kind to Abu Zubaydah. I was the only person who was. I said, I've never tortured anybody. I never laid a hand on Abu Zubaydah or anybody else. I said, your, your source is either mistaken or he's a liar. And Ross says to me, 
And I had no idea this was an old reporter's trick. He said, you're welcome to come on the show and defend yourself. I said, I'll think about it. In the meantime, a couple of days later, President Bush gives a, a press conference. And he looks right in the camera, Bo, looks right in the camera, and he says, we do not torture. Well, I was sitting with my wife, now my ex-wife, but she was also a senior CIA officer. And I said, he is a bald-faced liar. He is looking the American people in the eye, and he's lying. And then a couple of days later, he's walking from the back of the White House onto the helicopter to go to Camp David, and a reporter shouts a question, and Bush turns around and he says, well, if there is torture, it's the result of a rogue CIA officer. Don't and I said to my wife, bus. I said, so they knew that Brian you Ross, were, they knew that you were talking with the ABC guy. Go ahead. But I, but I, and I hadn't, I hadn't even said anything. But I said, Brian Ross's sources at the White House, and they're going to pin this on me. So I decided that I was going to do Brian Ross's interview, and I was going to tell the truth. This was an illegal program. It was unconstitutional, and I believed it was a war crime. It was anti-American to, to carry out a program like this. You know, and this is why the FBI, when we started torturing Abu Zubaydah, literally every FBI agent in the country, in, in that foreign country where we were torturing him, left the country. Because not only did they want no part of a torture program, they didn't even want to be in the same country where the torture was taking place. So I went public December of 07. Yeah. Here's where it gets weird, Bo. The, the FBI investigated me from December of 07 to December of 08. And in December of 08, they determined that I had not committed a crime and they closed the case. They even sent my attorneys a declination letter declining to prosecute me. I had no idea that three weeks later, when Barack Obama became president, that John Brennan asked the Justice Department to secretly reopen the case against me. I had no idea that my phones were being monitored, that my emails were being intercepted. There were surveillance. Another FISA, another FISA warrant. Here we go. Yeah, exactly. And, now, and now the thing is, under the whistleblower protection, why uh, are you protected under that? That is the best question. It's because... National security whistleblowers are exempt oh. from the protections of the Whistleblower Protection Act. Yeah, but right now we have a whistleblower who's supposed to be involved with national security Security right now, Trump. What right happened there? Yeah. Um, they amended the uh, law in 2015 after I got out of prison. Ah. And so now you're protected. Uh, although, let me say for the well, record. Let's back up again. Up. 2012. Let's go back. So now all yeah. of a sudden Brennan comes in with Obama yeah. in 08. Now they reopen the case in what? In 09? Yeah. Uh, in uh, 09. January of 09. Oh, yeah. And when do you get the next call from that you have a problem? In January of 12. That many years later? Yeah. So check this out. In the interim, I start working for John Kerry on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Good friend of mine, John. He's a, he was a decent man. Yeah, we used to hang out at Mar-a-Lago. Me and John Kerry, when his wife was alive, she she couldn't handle the booze that well. But uh, John's a good guy. I like him. We don't agree on a lot of things, but John's yeah. a good, good guy. Well, I'm working for him as the chief investigator on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And one of the great things about that job is... You get to have lunch with foreign diplomats all the time. It's a great exchange of information. 
So one day in 2011, remember, I have no idea I'm under investigation. One day in 2011, I get a call from a Japanese diplomat, and he wants to have lunch. So we have lunch, lovely lunch. We talked about, I remember it well, we talked about Turkish elections, Israeli elections, the Middle East peace process. And at the end of the lunch, he says to me, so what's next for you? And I said, actually, I think I'm going to resign soon. I, I promised Senator Kerry I'd give him two years. It's been two and a half. I got a bunch of kids at home. I got to put through college. I'm going to go back into the private sector. And he goes, he whispers, he goes, no, don't do that. If you give me information, I can give you money. Yeah. And I said, what the hell's wrong with you? You have any idea how many times I've made that pitch in my career? You're just going to cold pitch me? Shame on you, I said. And I, and I went, and I mean, without stopping, I went literally directly to the office of the Senate security officer. And I said, I was just pitched by a foreign intelligence officer. Which you have to do, right? You have to do. You're compelled by law. Do, yeah. Yes. So I reported it immediately. And he told me to write it up. And he called the FBI. Day later, two FBI agents come to see me at my office. And they asked me to, you know, tell them the story again. So I did. And they said, here's what we want you to do. We want you to call him back. Invite him to lunch. Try to get him to tell you exactly what information he wants and what he's willing to pay for it. Right. I said, okay. So I did. And I wrote them another detailed memo. They asked me to do it a third time and a fourth time. How much money was involved? Zero. Well, you, with, with him? Yeah. Yeah, he was offering me $5,000 a month. That's it? <laughs> Believe it or not, that's kind of standard pay for a for a sort of run-of-the-mill uh, spy. Oh, really? So, yeah. Real so, uh, that's bargain basement to me. Yeah. I'm yeah. reporting all of this in excruciating detail back to the FBI. Okay. In the final lunch, he says he got promoted. He's being transferred to his dream job. He's going to be the number two at the Japanese embassy in Cairo. I shake his hand, and I never saw him again. A year later, December of 12, I get arrested. I'm charged with three counts of espionage, one count of making a false statement, and we were never really sure what the false statement was supposed to have been, and one count of violating the Intelligence Identities Act of 1981. So um, we get discovery from the Justice Department, 15,000 pages of classified information. And in this discovery, we get a, a series of memos First of all, there's a memo from John Brennan to Eric Holder saying, charge him with espionage. Mm. And Holder, Holder responds, my people don't think he committed espionage. And then Brennan writes back and says, charge him anyway and make him defend himself. Wow. But then we get these memos that show that there never was any Japanese diplomat. He was an FBI agent. And they were setting you up. And they were setting me up. Did Why? you take the 5000 I did. I didn't take one red cent, oh. and I paid for the lunches. <laughs> and uh, what, what they ended up doing was the, the Japanese-American FBI agent sent a memo to his boss, Peter Strzok, oh. saying he's not going to take the bait. He keeps reporting the contact. Let's just end this. Yeah. And so that's why they came up with the story that he had gotten transferred. But they tried repeatedly to set me up on an espionage charge. And I kept reporting it back to the FBI. And so 
all the espionage charges were finally dropped. But what they do is something called charge stacking. They'll charge you with a whole bunch of and felonies. And they beat you to the ground. Yeah, they wait till you go bankrupt. And then they come back and they say, all right, we'll dismiss all the charges but one if you take a, a plea. What are you going to do? You, I was didn't go to, at, you didn't go to trial where this could all be exposed. You couldn't no, afford right. it. You couldn't afford it, right, John? I spent $1.15 million oh. on attorneys. I still owe them $880,000 that they'll never see. Um, and I ended up, instead of 45 years, I ended up with 23 months. Wow. Yeah. yeah. You have five kids. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, just the, you hear these stories, you just can't believe it. But you would, if you would have went to trial and got convicted, you could have gone away for a long time, right? Well, I asked my my attorneys cause, because I, I turned down every deal until the very end. And even the 23 months, I initially turned it down because I kept saying, as soon as I get in front of a jury, they're going to realize how ridiculous this is. I'm innocent. This is a setup. And I'm going to be acquitted. Mm. So... So my uh, my boss, my boss, my, my lead attorney pulled me aside and he said he was angry. And he said, you know what your problem is? Your problem is you think this is about justice and it's not about justice. It's about mitigating damage. Mm. Take the deal. And so I, I took the deal and I said to him, if I if I turn the deal down and I go to trial and I lose, what am I really looking at here? And he said, you're looking at, realistically, 12 to 18 years. Take the fucking deal, he said. Wow. So I took the deal. Why, what do you think that the intelligence community came after you? Oh, uh, they were furious that I had aired the dirty laundry. You know, there are these internal uh, systems in, in place where if you don't like something, you can, you can complain. But, but my chain of command created the CIA's torture program. It implemented the CIA's torture program. So um, they were furious that I had gone public. It was unforgivable. In fact, that was a word that a former colleague used with me, that what I had done was unforgivable. I went public. Yeah, but and, and what we're starting to see with Brennan, what's the other guy's name? Uh, yeah. National Security Advisor there. Uh, yeah, Brennan, and what's the other guy? The other clown from CNN. He's on CNN all the time. Oh, uh, oh, uh, uh, uh. Not not National Security Advisor, DNI, Clapper. Clapper, Clapper yep. yeah, Clapper and this other jerk off Brennan, and they're exposing yeah. everything. They were the leaks on it. Whether you like yeah. Donald Trump or not, they've yeah. been leaking like son of a bitches. Yeah, they're, they're and, Clapper, and, and they were the head of the, of the intelligence organization, and they've been leaking stuff right on TV. Yeah, that's yeah. right. They're prolific leakers, and they're both liars. I mean, we all saw... The footage of, of Clapper lying under oath to the Senate Intelligence Committee saying that NSA doesn't intercept the communications of American citizens. Yeah. They lie, they leak, and they get away with it. John, so what are you doing now, John? Well, I'm, I've got a radio show here in Washington uh, every day from 4 to 6, the afternoon drive. And um, I write uh, a weekly syndicated newspaper column. I write books. I give speeches. You know, little here, little there. I patched together a living. Was he friends with our friend from the Swiss bank? Uh, do you, yes. We, yeah, Brad Birkenfeld. I think that's in, how we got in touch. In fact, uh, I'm having dinner with Brad tonight. Well, Brad, Brad, Brad will be with me tomorrow, and uh, he has some interesting story, but that has like a kind of a 
similar thing. This yep. guy was opening up, and nothing ever was done with all these son of a bitches not paying yep. taxes. And it pisses me off. And you know what? They should have went after him and all these highfalutin people with these yeah. accounts. It's unbelievable. But you know what? I, I just, I, I, you know, we're going to wrap it up because we're all time constrained here. But let me tell you yep. something, John. You're quite an American patriot. And Thank guys you. like you, whether you agree with the waterboard or not, I have my own personal opinions about waterboarding. Sure. And I have my own my personal opinions about torture. And when, uh, you know, I was down in 9-11, I'll never forget what the site I saw. I'll yeah. never forget what the what I observed with these terrorists and my own feelings on something. If I had someone that was going to explode a nuclear bomb in New York City, yeah. I, I may have done it a different way, not waterboarding. You know what I would have done? I would have bought a pig, a live pig, gut the son of a bitch open, put it on the yabba dabba doo's head, shoot him in the kneecap, and say, unless you tell me you're not going to get to your 72 virgins. I may have done that. I may have done that, Carlo. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I've been known when I was a New York City detective back in the 70s. I used to be able to hold guys off the roof by their ankles after the guy shot a cop, and I, I lost grip. I never lost a prisoner, never killed anybody. Also, I did. I was the advent of waterboarding, but it's called toilet bowling. What they would yeah. do, they would have these apartments that they haven't flushed the toilet two years, poo-poo in there. And I used to be able to put the guy's head in there, and then I'd pull it out, and I'd have poo-poo all over my arm, but he would tell me what I want to know. He shot <laughs> a cop. Were. Sorry, but you know what? Things have changed, and you want to yeah. know something in reality? They've tortured our soldiers, and they've tortured our military. So that's my own personal opinion, but I do yeah. respect your opinion, John, the same Thank as you, my opinion, and I mean that with all my heart. And you have a real important point of what you feel, and I respect it. I totally respect it, John. We do something on our show every week. We do our punk of the week. Punk of the week means something or somebody that's really pissing you off. Who's your punk of the week, John? You know, my, my punk of the week, I think, it has to be the same person it is every week, and that's John Brennan. Oh. Uh, because John Brennan is a liar. John Brennan is the, the opposite of a, of a patriot. Uh, John Brennan needs to be dealt with. What about you, Carla? What's your point? Well, I'd have to go with the bail reform in New York. It was recent news that there were three guys busted in Washington Heights. They were dog fighting. They had heroin. They had loaded guns. Uh, one, one guy got bail. The two guys are other guys no bail. They're oh. out in the streets. Well, my yeah. punk of the week is this ugly two guys. I got two punks. One, my fat friend, Jerry Nadler, the one that got his stomach stapled. He used to weigh about 400 pounds. I can't even look at him. And then the other bug eyes there, Adam Schiff, I can't yeah. look at this guy. I would yeah. take an arrest and slap him right in his face and straighten his eyes out. I got two punks in a week, those two. As far as the lady goes on speaking of the house, she's just an old lady there just crackling away. And yeah. in reality, what we should be doing is doing jobs and getting things done in Washington instead of all this bull crap. Censure him. Censure the president. You shouldn't have made that yeah. phone call. Let's move it. on. Let's move on. He didn't do something that was so criminal. He didn't take a bribe. Let's go on with this. Let's get things done in this country. We have a great economy. I love this country. Let's bring everybody together instead of this division. That's my punk of the week. Amen. All right. Amen. John, where can people find you? Where, where's your website? Where's your radio oh, show? Thank you. I'm at uh, johnkiriaku.com, John, J-O-H-N, Kiriaku, K-I-R-I-A-K-O-U. I'm on Facebook and Twitter. 
and I look forward to hearing from everybody. All right, John, thanks very much for being here. Uh, really, really great stories, yeah. very interesting stuff. Uh, we'll probably want to do a follow-up at some point and you know, get your opinion on some current events, uh, which is a little short of time this week. Uh, thanks for all our listeners. You can follow us on social media. We're at One Tough Podcast on Twitter, and Bo is at Bo Deedle on Twitter. You can email us any questions, comments, guest suggestions, onetoughpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll see you next week. Hey, John, thank you very much. God bless you. Merry thank Christmas you, to you and your kids. God bless you. Happy, uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. All right, right. my friend. Thank you. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.